Some of you are aware of the um, struggles in Nepal between uh, India and Nepal. Uh, Nepal, for those of you that aren't aware, is a country that had a big earthquake followed by thousands of earthquakes, and they're still having them. They, um, during the middle of all of the earthquakes, the General Assembly uh, approved the new constitution, which declared them a secular state. India is not very happy with that because both India and Nepal were Hindu states prior to that. So I'm going to read to you a, um, a Facebook post from a friend of mine. In fact, he was my, been my translator for many years over there. Former Buddhist monk, uh, believer, good man, good man. Here's what he says. No fuel for motorbike, no supplies, no public vehicles. All vehicles are in line at all empty fuel stations. Most of the hotels, restaurants, and resorts are closed due to shortage of cooking gas. Most of the schools and colleges are closed. Nepal, India borders blockaded by India. Today is the 17th day. So um, in a country that's already devastated, their, big, their uh, very large country to the south has closed all the towns and won't let supplies, relief supplies, come in. So their uh, saga continues in a new way. The believers that I know over there that I'm in contact with are trying to find ways to adjust and still uh, live out their faith. So I thought we'd stop and pray for them this morning. Father, I lift up uh, Nepal, its people. Lord, I pray that you would, could be kind to them, Lord, and merciful. On top of the devastation of all the earthquakes, now to be short on cooking fuel and food and all those things is even uh, more devastation on top of devastation. I pray, Father, for the believers that are there, that you would continue to sustain them and help them to live out their faith in real ways. I know that's what their desire is. And I pray for India. I pray that you would change their mind, whether it's through your work in their life or through world pressure, whatever it is. I pray that you would change their mind and that you would open the borders and allow the uh, supplies to get in, Lord. We are all better when the world is better. So please help them. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so remember to pray for them throughout the week as the Lord reminds you. Okay, we're in the final, um, the final Sunday of the series on the, what does it mean to be wholly committed to God. We've been asking that question uh, in a variety of ways. We've asked, what is keeping you from being wholly committed to God? Or do you really believe that God is good in all that he does? Uh, that's, for some of you, that's a tough question to answer right now because you're going through tough times. I've, I've been there. I've done that. I've shared, and most of you have heard my story, uh, that when my first wife died, I was with her when she died, and I uh, had two immediate responses, tears of sorrow and uh, a chuckle of joy that, huh, my faith is real. Uh, the Lord just took away the most important person to me, and I still believe my faith is real. Do you really believe that God is good in all that he does? Another way to ask the question is, what does it mean to live out our faith? What does it mean in the world around us? We're going to talk about that. So, James uses four Old Testament figures to emphasize his point that faith without works is dead. Abraham, Rahab, Job, and Elijah. Remember, Abraham and Rahab are two opposites of the same example, two opposite extremes. One is a man who walked by faith, and the other one was a prostitute who came to know the Lord. And then last week when we looked at Job, we added to the whole idea of enduring, patient enduring, with the concept of blessing. There is a blessing waiting for you. And I said last week, you're so close, so close. Don't give in. Don't abandon the faith. Don't walk away. Don't become even worse. Don't become mediocre. Stay committed to the Lord. There is blessing that's coming. So today we're going to talk about Elijah, because he's at the very end of James 5. But first, 
before we get to Elijah, we have to go back into the uh, Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and look at the story of Elijah. Elijah first appears on the scene with no introduction. He just appears out of nowhere in a very sudden, harsh, dramatic way in 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. All right, who's he talking to? He's talking to Ahab. Ahab is the king of the northern kingdom, Israel. And let me read to you that in the chapter before, chapter 16, verse 29, a little bit about Ahab. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. So Ahab, he became the king. He reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Wow. Not good words to have written down about you, is it? He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Etbaal, king of the Sidonians, so she's from Sidon, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings before him. Wow. Amazing. So what do we learn from Ahab? He married Jezebel, who is a Sidonian princess. She's from Sidon. He continued the blasphemous practices of Jeroboam by worshiping the Canaanite gods Baal and Asherah. Those are the main ones and the many others that go with it. <coughs> we learn a little bit later uh, in chapter 18 that the prophets of these gods ate regularly at Jezebel's table. There were 850 of the prophets that ate at her table of the two gods, the god and the goddess. Asherah is the goddess. And there's one prophet of the Lord. Uh, so 850 prophets, excuse me. And um, this, just to put it in a historical context, is only about 85 years after King Solomon, after the dedication of the temple, not even the end of his reign. So you may remember that Solomon built the temple, David wanted to, but uh, God wouldn't allow him to do that. So Solomon built it, and then God's glory filled the temple. They sacrificed all the animals, and the whole nation was praising God and worshiping. And then Solomon, at the dedication, prayed these things. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read you the whole prayer out of 1 Kings 8. It's way too long. But I'm going to read a couple of, uh, three paragraphs just to give you an idea of the state of the nation 85 years earlier. So Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. Listen to that language. You keep your covenant with those who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and now with your hands you have fulfilled it as it is today. A little bit later on in his um, prayer, he says this. I remember he's leading the whole nation in prayer. This is the nation's prayer. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when, so he, he, he is a wise man, he's a human, and he recognizes his people are human. So when that happens, when they sin, I often pray for that for you. When they sin, God, just be merciful and gracious. 
So when your people have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven, forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them back to the land that you gave to their ancestors. And then one more paragraph, because he brings you and me into it. As for the foreigners who do not belong to your people Israel, but have come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. Aren't those wonderful words? When they come, for they will hear of your name. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigners ask of you. Boy, we never talk about unbelievers praying, do we? We don't ever talk about that. But listen, do whatever these foreigners ask of you. Why? So that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and you may know that this house I have built bears your name. That's just 85 years before what we just read about Ahab. He considered the sins of his earlier kings trivial. He magnified their sins and did far worse. Now, Elijah walks into this context. He's probably the first prophet to come. We don't have a record of an earlier prophet that I know of. He's probably the first prophet, and he comes talking to them about monotheism, the one true living God, the one true living God, as opposed to henotheism, the belief in many gods. The key question that Elijah is going to be, he's going to raise and the Lord is going to answer through him is this. Is Yahweh, is this one true living God that we believe in, by the way, is this one true living God stronger than Baal and the rest of the Canaanite pantheon? That's the question. He's going to be put to the test to answer it. This introduces, if you know the whole story, we're not going to read the whole story, it's way too long, but it's fascinating if you want to read 1 Kings 17 and on. This introduces a life and death struggle between Elijah and Ahab and his wife Jezebel. As the story unfolds, two things happen. First, Baal is increasingly challenged, and secondly, Elijah's faith increases with each act. We're going to look at two of the stories today, only two. There are many, some of you learned some of them in in Sunday school when you were a kid. We're going to look at two of them. One of them is the widow at Zarephath. It's 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 7. And I'm going to read the story. In fact, I'm going to read both stories ultimately, so there's a little bit of reading involved, because you need to hear what happens. The story is fascinating. Sometime later, now remember, he had just said that uh, as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That's his declaration to King Ahab. Sometime later, verse 7, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. What happens when the rain dries up? The water goes away. Food goes away too. Drought leads to famine. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. That's Jezebel's home country, her hometown. Go to the place, and Jezebel's an evil woman. Go to Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. So he said to her, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have something to drink? As he was going to get it, he called out, Oh, and would you please bring me a piece of bread? 
Now they're in the middle of a severe famine. So she replies, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and not die. And you want a loaf of bread? So Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, making for your family. But first, there's the sacrifice, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And, when, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there's no food every day for Elijah. There was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house uh, became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally he died. He stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, I love these words, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Now listen to these words. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord, this one true living God, it's all capitals, L-O-R-D, the word of this one true living God from your mouth is the truth. Now I know. All right. So he feeds a widow and her son in a time of drought and famine. She's from Sidon. He raises the widow's son from the dead, and so she acknowledges the truth of Yahweh. Now, just a little tiny snapshot of the cultural history here so you understand the significance of what just happened. In Canaanite mythology, God Baal, the God Baal, had to subject himself to Mot. Mot was the god of death. That's how the Canaanites understood it. So Baal had to subject himself to Mot, the god of death. He had to do this every year during the period of the drought. People were dying. And so what he just did by raising the boy in the midst of the drought, Elijah demonstrates that Yahweh was the one true God. He did not have to subject himself, submit himself to moat. He overcame death. That's the significance of the story occurring in the midst of this famine and drought. Now, look what Jesus does with this story in Luke chapter 4. This is probably one of the very first times he taught publicly. It's just after his temptation in Luke. He goes to his own hometown, Nazareth, where he had been brought up, Luke 4, 16. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as it was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So he unrolled it and found the place where, now remember, they don't have chapters and verses. This is a scroll with 66 chapters we know today, and he's looking through to find what he wants to read. He reads from Psalm 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. This is the ministry of Jesus right here, to set the oppressed free. And we are to live that out. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. I bet so. Hometown boy. He began by saying to them, Today, this very moment, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know what he's saying? The Messiah is sitting right in your midst. They all spoke well of him, of course, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? A little bit of pride there. He's one of their own. So Jesus said to them, now you're going to quote this Proverbs to me, physician, heal yourself, and you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. In other words, now you're going to say, prove it, aren't you? Show us a sign, prove it. That's what everybody else wants. Show us a sign, prove it. So Jesus said to them, and this is where it gets really dicey, um, prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. And where is he? In his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. He went to the Gentiles, to the pagans. And we learn that this was God's plan all along was to reach the entire world. Now, the Jewish people who felt they had a divine right on this one God, here's what happened. All the people in the synagogue were furious, furious when they heard this and they tried to kill him. Tried to kill him. Just turned his back on them. Said, I'm going to the Jews, basically. You're just the Gentiles. I mean, I'm going to the Gentiles. They're just as important as you are. That's how Jesus uses this phrase. Okay, hang on to that. Now we're going to look at the second story. This is the story of Mount Carmel. This is in 1 Kings 18, chapter, or verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet with Elijah. He, he told him that Elijah was there. So here's what Ahab said when he saw Elijah. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? In other words, he's prophesying things that then he didn't like. Elijah said, I, I haven't made any trouble for Israel, but you and your father's house have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel's a wicked lady. She's the one that brings all these gods, false gods, into the nation, and Ahab worships them. So there's 850 of them. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between the two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Some of you have heard me say, Christianity, it's not a way of life. It is life. It's not a game. If your faith isn't real, Give up and move on. Go for it. Walk away. If your faith is real, live it out. Don't play games with the Lord. Don't do that. So I love this language here. But the people said nothing. It's kind of like you. Everybody's saying nothing. Well, you're sitting here listening to me preach. You don't have a choice. 
Then Elijah said to them, <laughs> I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, and do not, but, did not, but do not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and I'll put it on the wood, but I won't set fire to it. Then you call the name of your God and I will call on the name of my God, the God who answers by fire. He is the true God. Okay? I could just tell you the story, but I'm going to read it because I want you to hear it. It's fascinating. All the people say, wow, great idea. Let's do that. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, so uh, no one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. So at noon, Elijah, being a patient man that he is, began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he has to be awakened. Where is this god? So they shouted louder and louder and slashed themselves with sword and spears, as was their custom, until their blood was flowing. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. So they all gathered around him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. That tells you the state of the nation. They had torn down the altar to the true God. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. That's probably about 24 pounds. He arranged the wood, he cut the bull into pieces, and he laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars of water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. And that's what they did. Then he said, do it again. And they did. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know. Now listen to the language. This is very similar to the prayer dedication by Solomon. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. That's why we live our lives of faith, so that people will know we believe in the one true living God. We are not ashamed to say it. We know who he is and we believe in him because we have experienced him. We're not afraid. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil. It even licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley, and he slaughtered them all there. 
And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees. He told his servant, Go and look toward the sea, and he went and looked. There's nothing there. Seven times Elijah said, Go back. The seventh time the servant reported, There's a cloud. It's as small as a man's hand. It's rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain came on Ahab, and Ahab, Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah. Tucking a cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. All right, this represents the, the climax of all the stories about uh, Elijah. The significance of the story lies in understanding some of the background. You see, there was longstanding tension over um, Mount Carmel, who had control of it. The Phoenicians and the Israelites argued over it, and the marriage between Ahab and Jezebel was, uh, it helped to smooth over the relations. But Elijah probably chose this specific mountain to increase the tension to a new level. It raises the question as to which deity Mount Carmel truly belonged. Did Mount Carmel belong to Baal and the uh, Canaanite pantheon, or did Mount Carmel belong to the one true living God? The drought was sent to, it was designed by God to get their attention, to cause them to look back to the Lord because um, they had looked, they had turned away. This is one of those places where you can answer the question, why did bad things happen? Severe famine and drought, God was getting their attention. Why did bad things happen? Sometimes God's trying to get your attention. That's why. Okay? And the nation had turned away from God. Once the people acknowledged Yahweh as the one true God and turned over the prophets to Baal, he sent, he ends the drought. So these stories demonstrate that Yahweh, the God we believe in, is the one true living God. He's God even over death and over the elements. So in their culture, all of this is connected to, to culture, their society, and what's going on. All of it. And God's communicating a very loud message. I'm not happy that you've turned away. Turn back to me. I am the true God. All right, now we fast forward to James, now that you've had the context. Okay, in James, you may remember that he has just finished talking about Job. That was last week. And what it means to endure patiently, steadfastly to the very end. So here he introduces some of the emotional contrasts of life. And listen to these words in James 5.13. Uh, there's three parts to this last little section. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. There's two extremes of the emotional spectrum right there. Some of you are in trouble, aren't you? And some of you are happy. You've been blessed. You're going through a season of rest right now. You've heard me say that when God takes you through a season of rest, don't look over your shoulder and say, when's the other shoe going to drop? That's not the way God works at all. Think of it this way. God has given me a period of rest to live out my faith, and when he thinks I'm ready, he's going to take my faith to a new level. That's what testing is for. So is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make them well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, we're not going to try to unpack this entire story. Lots and lots and lots of ink has been spilled trying to make sense of all of it, but there are a couple things I want to highlight. The key that James is pointing out here is to bring God into every situation. Every situation. By the way, the testing of your faith, which is so prominent in this book, is not always negative. You may inherit a windfall. I don't know your family histories. You may wake up one day and you've inherited a whole lot of money. You've just been blessed. That's just as much of a test of your faith as if you lose someone. Maybe you're building a business and all of a sudden it just takes off. Wildly successful, I don't know. So blessing from God, the testing of your faith comes in positive and negative terms. So the key is to bring God into every situation. That's what he's highlighting here, either through prayer or praise, although prayer is what receives most of the attention. The remedy for suffering is prayer. Traditionally, the word we translated sick, if anyone is among you sick, has been interpreted to refer to physical sickness, and it does include that, but it has a much wider meaning throughout the New Testament. It really has the idea of being weak. I'm going to read just one um, one passage, there's many, but I'll just read one out of Romans chapter 4 so you can see how it's used. This is in the story of Abraham, who he just used as an example right away. It's Romans 4, 18 and 19. <clears throat> Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, there's that word, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. So I use the example that James used to talk about Abraham when his son was born and he sacrificed it. Weakened faith. Some of you have been there. So it's used of weakness far more. So given the context of James where he's saying prove your faith, faith without works is dead, live out your faith, demonstrate genuine faith, be steadfast to the end. Given that context, we have to include weakness here. Um, some of you are weak. Some of you are weak. We should call the elders. If your faith is weak, maybe you've been beat down. Call us. Let us come pray for you. Some of you have done that. It is worth the experience of having elders traipse into your house, anoint you with oil, lay hands on you, and pray for you. It's worth it. In the ancient world, there was no clear distinction between physical, mental, and spiritual sickness. It was all grouped together. Today, we've separated out. So with physical sickness, where do we go? Medical doctors, right? Mental illness, where do we go? Psychologists and psychiatrists. Spiritual sickness, where do we go? Pastors, missionaries. Okay, but that wasn't the way in the ancient world. It was all together. It's all connected. It's all holistic, which I believe is actually a better way to look at it. Even Jesus' own healing ministry demonstrated a commitment to holistic ministry. Everywhere he went, he was encouraging people. He was helping them. The emphasis on elders and oil were common among the Judaisms of that day, so I'm not going to say very much about that. What is new is the call to invoke the name of the Lord. That's what's new, to pray in the name of the Lord. Because you see, in Judaism, there was a strong reluctance to call in the name of Yahweh because of the fourth commandment, not to take his name in vain, so they would never use his name. So James starts off, James 1 and James 2, by talking about Jesus. I think what he's saying is, this is a new day. Pray 
in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's a new day. We can invoke the name of God. It's good. What does John 1 tell us? No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten, the only son who is himself God, he has made him known. He has revealed him. It's okay. It's a new day. Additionally, the exhortation to gather around and confess sins is striking because you see, in the ancient world, sickness, if allowed to spread, could bring serious health problems to the community. So sick people tended to be isolated in camps. This is something that's reversing all that. To gather around the sick person was not only an act of faith, but it represented solidarity. We're all together in this redeemed community. So we call in the name of the Lord, that's brand new. We gather around something they didn't do, that's brand new. And we're all showing we're in this together. All right. Then at this point, verse 17, he brings in Elijah. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. Now, I didn't read the rest of the story, but Elijah went running. After that event at Mount Carmel, Jezebel issued a national edict. Kill this man. Put a contract out on his head. (laughs) I'll pay you X amount of whatever they pay. So go kill him. Okay? Go after him. He ran and hid. He was terrified, and God had to remind him that he was God. So James appropriately says Elijah was a human being just like we are. In other words, he is a fitting model for us to follow. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Now, remember how he starts this little section. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human just like we are. Again, Elijah prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. All right. What I want to highlight here, we learn from Elijah and many others, effective prayer is very hard work. It's very hard work. You know why? I'm going to surprise you. Not because it means you spend hours in prayer. Not that. It's the opposite. Because it's the product of a lifelong commitment, wholehearted commitment to God and righteous living. You just don't wake up one day and say, God, deliver me. And God says, okay. That's not the way it works. Effective prayer means that it's coming from a life wholly committed to God. That's what it means. It's really hard. Day in, day out, moment by moment, serving the one true God, not saying no, but believing with faith and living it out. That's what produces effective prayer. Not trying to generate more faith, not praying more hours. No, it's living a righteous life. That's what generates effective prayer. Elijah was a man of great faith. And by the way, this fits with his whole argument all the way through here of being wholeheartedly committed to God, doesn't it? That's what it means. He was a man of great faith, but he was wholly committed to God. This demonstrates that while we have the authority to ask God for the healing of our people who are in trouble, it also communicates the responsibility and the obligation to live lives of faith. They go together. And Elijah demonstrates that. And then he adds this little verse, two verses right at the end, which we often disregard. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring them back, remember this. This is the last verse. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the way of error will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James now ties it all together using Elijah. Because you see, Elijah's ministry was there because the people had wandered away from God. 
That was the whole reason he came on the scene. And just as Elijah is instrumental in bringing God's people back to the faith, we are to bring our people back from the way, James says, that leads to death. It is not enough just to pray. It's not enough. We have a role to play in each other's lives. We live in a culture that has uh, become so litigious, we think of it this way. You're not in trouble until you've actually broken the law. So when do we confront somebody for adultery? When they've already committed adultery. What a tragedy. I'm so grateful for a good friend in 1992 went to visit me in Germany as a missionary and spent a couple weeks in my home. He and I hopped the train for two weeks to uh, Romania to see what was going on there. About an hour out of the train station, Frankfurt, he said, you know, you're kind of hard, harsh uh, with Nancy. Oh, what do you mean? And he said, I've been in your home. And I said, he said, you're not very kind to her. The words you're saying are, aren't, aren't they're, they're harsh. And I said, why are you telling me this now? And he said, uh, because I'm your best friend, I love you, and I had two weeks with you, and I'd rather you beat me up than beat up your wife. So we had two weeks to process it. And at the end of two weeks, I got back, and I told Nancy what happened. I asked her, and she said, you don't know the half of it. That was a turning point in my marriage. I'm so grateful for a friend who turned me back from a way that leads to death. That's what our responsibility is. This picture of being wholly committed to God includes demonstrating our love in very real ways. People that are hurting, helping them. People that are sinning, exposing it, helping them turn back. Because we represent, we represent the community, the ultimate community of faith that's going to be there in the New Jerusalem. This is the way the world finds God is by looking at our community right here. When's the last time you went to a friend whose marriage is in trouble, and you all know them, you all know them, you went to them and said, it, it feels to me like your marriage is in trouble. Is everything okay? Anything I can do to help you? How can I help? I have done that many times since I've been in this church. I had one husband look at me. His, his jaw was hanging open. His eyes were big, and he said, I didn't think anybody noticed, much less cared. For those of you that have gone through divorce and all kinds of bad things, don't you wish somebody would have intervened earlier and stepped in? Just be courageous. Don't be afraid. Step in. If somebody's struggling, they're arrogant, they're sinful, whatever, just step in and say, hey, what's going on? What's going on? This isn't like you. I've done that here. What's going on? Why are you doing this? Helping people. So what's keeping you from being wholly committed to God? at the end of the series. Where are the places in your life where you are not living out your faith? God has put you in the lives of people specifically to help them. You're called a friend because you turn them back from their erring ways. Or maybe they're hurting and you're the one that helps them. That's why you're there. In our culture, we do such a great job of being independent. We don't need each other. And we certainly have the right to privacy. No, we don't. There's nothing in the Bible about the right to privacy. No, you have the right for the people around you to notice and step in and say, is everything okay? As a community that represents the Messiah, can we continue to grow in our love and commitment to each other? Including restoring er erring members. Can we do that? It doesn't have to be confrontational. 
It can be gentle. Is everything okay? Is everything fine? Father, thank you. Thanks for sending us your son. Thanks for loving us so deeply and for being so committed to us that redeemed people. Everywhere I look in the Bible, I see you pursuing us relentlessly to love you, to follow you. Thank you for that. We uh, lift these things up in your son's name. Amen.